You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Ridgecrest Baptist Church in Springfield, Missouri. To connect with us or learn more, visit us online at ridgecrestbaptist.org. Now today what we're doing and what we've been doing the last couple of weeks is starting in the Old Testament, looking at a prophetic voice, a word of prophecy, and following that into the New Testament and seeing how the prophet anticipated and how the gospels deliver. And from there, we can talk about how that impacts our lives. We spend time together in the word because we believe that the word is what changes and transforms lives. And God's plan and purpose in the word, as we unpack it, we begin to realize that these are not words for people of the past. These are words for us here in the present. And we'll begin our journey this morning in the prophecy of Hosea. I want to read one verse to you. It's in chapter 11, verse 1. And I want you to hear this, this one verse, and then in a minute we're going to come back and look at the, the, four, the first four verses of this chapter. But I want you to hear this. When Israel was a child, Hosea says, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Those are the words of Yahweh. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt... I called my son. That's a powerful prophetic moment there in Hosea. Now, if you will, turn to Luke chapter 1. So let's go all the way into the gospel of Luke, the first chapter. Near the end of that first chapter, let's pick up in verse 78, where it begins with the word because. So Luke 1, 78, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Now, what I wanted to show you was the darkness of the prophecy in Hosea, then the light that Luke is able to see here in the first chapter of Luke. And now I want to take you to something that Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. All right, so if you'll turn there. I know this is a lot of work. You didn't come to church to do all this work, did you? All these pages turning, right? All these, all these clicks on your app. But go ahead, it, it's good for you, okay? 1 Corinthians 15, let's go down to verse 54. And here we hear the resurrection hope we have. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you will help us make the connections we need, not just in the passage of Scripture, the passages that we've looked at here, but the connections that our hearts need most. Lord, in this room, there are many of us who are feeling the defeat of, of this world. We're feeling the darkness of this life. And I pray God that today, if anyone is feeling that defeat, that you will remind them that they have victory in your name. And I pray that if there is any darkness that is clouding our eyes and our heart today, that you will help us to see your light. And we pray this in Jesus name. Amen. 
Rich was talking a moment ago about, about hymns and songs, and it, there is something about the Christmas season that seems to really spark that, the, the creative juices and start, start us thinking a little bit more as poets. There's a hymn that was written by Graham Kendrick back in 1983. It's entitled, From Heaven You Came. I want to read a few lines from that great hymn. From heaven you came, helpless babe, entered our world, your glory veiled, not to be served, but to serve. Notice that. Not to be served, but to serve. And give your life that we might live. Those are powerful words. Those are the words at the very heart of the Christmas story. That God came in this tiny package of a child to bring us this amazing victory that we have in his name. To serve us, to care for us, to give us the hope of life. That tiny life tucked into a manger would save the world from sin's devastation and win absolute victory over death itself. One of the things I want to do for you this morning is I want to try to draw a line from the manger to the resurrected Lord. And, and it's kind of like this. I was thinking about it as I was sitting down here. Yesterday, my wife and I, we had our very first day where we had enough time to go do some Christmas shopping. I had no idea that Springfield had a population of 18 million people. <laughs> and they were all at the Battlefield Mall. 18 million people live in Springfield. That's, that's my rough guesstimate, okay? And so we, we spent uh, our day, and you know, I always enter into the mall with hopeful expectation and optimism and leave totally pessimistic and angry at the world, okay? So yesterday, you know, my wife and I are going uh, uh, through and we, we have like a list and we have, you know, exactly what we want to do. But you know, when you go shopping with your wife, there is not a straight A to B line. There is the, the, the graph goes more like this. And I'm like, we're, we're here to get a scarf. Why are you looking at candles? Candles and scarves are different things. It's not why I'm here. Now, I'm, I'm being funny here, mostly because my wife is in the second service. <laughs> and because I, I, I got to thinking about how in a passage like this, the passages I've read to you, it almost looks like we're, we're kind of going all over the place. We're taking the more female approach to shopping. <laughs> we're, we're, we're kind of here and there and everywhere. But I want you to see, as, as I've thought about what I wanted to share with you today, uh, it really is about helping you see the, the connection between Christmas and your salvation, your eternal life. We cannot get away from this. I, I do think that our culture today is open to going and seeing the nativity scenes. They, they like to see um, uh, the beautiful picture of the Christ child in the manger. That is not that offensive. But I'm telling you, when you start talking about the blood of the cross, when you start talking about the power of sin, when you start talking about the darkness of the human heart, people aren't as willing to listen to that. But we cannot separate the Jesus, the baby Jesus in the manger from the Jesus on the cross to the resurrected Lord and Savior and King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We have to make that connection. And the Bible does exactly that. We want to connect Jesus, his birth, to his victory. 
And so today as we, as we look in, in this prophecy of Hosea and, and beyond, we're reminded that all of the prophets, almost every single one, caught a glimpse of the Christ. They, they all were allowed to see the coming of Jesus from a different angle. And Hosea, we just read, he, he realized that Jesus would have to, the Messiah would have to go down into Egypt. We'll talk about the significance of that here in a moment. But all of these things, here in chapter 1 of Luke, we see that, that John the Baptist's parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they uh, saw also something about Jesus. But what they saw was not darkness, but light. All of these prophetic utterances, all of these different images point us to this amazing story. And in my mind this Christmas season, I think the line I keep hearing in my mind are Mary's words. How will this be? How can this be? God, how is it that you, you would love us this much, that you would give us such an amazing gift, such humble beginnings that we see there in the nativity scene? Yes, but what an amazing hope. And I want us to see that every work of God in your life, we need to believe this, that every work of God is truly a miracle. But the victory over death that Jesus has given us is the miracle of miracles. And I want each one of you to share in that. And then I want each one of you to share that. I want each one of you in this room to share in this wonderful salvation that comes through Christ alone. And once you have experienced it, I would pray that you would share that wonderful message with all those that are in your sphere of influence and even those that God brings into your life. For a moment, let's talk about the prophet Hosea. Let me set this up just a little bit. He was a prophet of the northern kingdom and he was close on the heels of the prophet Amos. Amos, I just have to believe, was probably the most crusty of the prophets. He was probably the guy that nobody liked. Um, I think he was a tell-it-like-it-is kind of guy. I think he was the kind of kind of guy that, that made all the kids cry when he walked into the room. I think he was that kind of guy. God uses that kind of guy every once in a while. But Hosea was completely different. Hosea was a prophet whose love seems to pour out from every passage Every verse, we, 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 we can feel sympathy for Hosea. We realize that he is tolerating a lot of chaos in his life, but he's doing so in a way to honor God. His love for God and for his nation and for his wife is profound. Most of you know the story. Hosea's calling is one of the most unique in all of scripture. He was called to have a wife who was unfaithful. And that served as an illustration of what was happening in the northern kingdom of Israel. The people of God were not being faithful to God. And God had every right to just destroy them. Just as Hosea had every right to divorce his wife. But that's not the story of Hosea, nor is it the story of God and his redemptive plan. God has every right to reject us once we've sinned. And I'm here to tell you as a human being, it didn't take long for you to go down that path. Our hearts are bent toward sin. And God has every right to reject us. But instead of reject us, he has allowed us to receive the coming of the Christ. 
Hosea helps us to grab a hold of that great big truth. What's interesting to me is that Hosea's time is very similar to ours. At this particular moment, and it was a very short moment, but at this particular moment in history, it looks like that God's people are in ascendancy, that the nation that is Israel and the nation that is Judah, it looks like they are prospering. It looks like they are going to be successful. On the outside, it looks really good. But on the inside, it is broken and decaying. And Hosea, who has to be one of those eternal optimists in the history of the Bible, he is told by God about this decaying inner reality that the spiritual life of the people is, is dying. And he is called to, to stand firm and to speak truth to people who are very comfortable in their ways and very confident in their future. But just when we are, 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 are comfortable and confident, that is when we are most often set up for failure. And this is why, though I am, am like you and so happy that America right now is experiencing a time of prosperity, that, that it seems like God's blessings are poured out upon us, friends, don't just look at what's the, on the outside of the equation. We need to be asking the harder questions concerning the heart of our culture. And what we see and what we, what we have to acknowledge, if we're honest, is, is that our culture, just like the culture in Hosea's day, it looks good on the outside, but there seems to be a lot of decay inside. And friends, what we need to realize is, is that that shouldn't cause us to, 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 to throw up our hands and give up. We shouldn't just say, well, that's the way it's going to go and there's nothing we can do to change it. But I think like Hosea, we need to bear the burdens of the culture. We need to dig in deeper in sharing the gospel and discipling people. Don't be discouraged by the darkness. Be the light in the darkness. That's what Hosea does. Don't, we cannot talk about having a hard life or a difficult ministry when we start reading about Hosea. And we see that God used his wife's infidelity in this case to strengthen him, to, to show him love, to remind him that mercy is what every human being needs. And I've said this many times on Sunday nights and Wednesday nights in my preaching, but church, we need to be the church that is reaching out to hurting people. We need to be the church that stands firm on truth, but we need to be the church that is always communicating that sinners of every stripe, of, of every kind, no matter what your hurt and pain is, come here and hear the gospel. We need to be tolerant of those who are sinners. Not tolerant of the sins, but tolerant of the human beings that Christ came to die for. And here at Christmas time, yes, it's easy to have a, a nice Christmas sermon about Jesus in the manger. Yes, but even that last song we heard reminded us that even at, at the birth of Christ, it was not a silent night. It wasn't an easy time. We've sanitized the whole story of Jesus. The Bible won't let us do that. The Bible won't let us sanitize something so sacred. It will not allow us to miss the ugliness that Jesus came to save us from. Hosea helps us see that.
Hosea 11.1 is the hint that the Holy Family would have to flee and go down to Egypt because of a wicked king. This story is told to us in Matthew 2, 13 through 15. We know this to be the, the, the reality that, that Jesus had to be uh, whisked away into Egypt, a place uh, that was really dark, a place that was feared by the Hebrew people, but he had to go down there. He had to do uh, what was necessary because of Herod, because of the ugliness of the time. But Jesus came to defeat death forever. And I want to show you that here today. So let's begin there in Egypt because that's where Hosea is. If you, if you will, turn back to that passage in Hosea. And I'm going to read to you verses 1 through 4, give you a little more context here. I wanted you to understand where Hosea is coming from. He's coming from a period of prosperity uh, on the outside, but a time of great spiritual decay on the inside. And this is what he writes. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. And notice verse 2. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke of their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. Especially in those last two verses, do you hear the heavenly father speaking? These are are words of compassion. And I believe that Hosea was a man full of love and compassion for his people. What a sad thing, though, for a man who loves his people to watch them choosing death. It's a sad, sad thing to know that, that Hosea loved people who really didn't appreciate what he did and more importantly, didn't love God. And yet the prophet was called to continue to preach and to tell people about the coming of the Messiah. Hear this. God used Hosea's heartbreaking ministry to anticipate the Christ. And let me throw this out. I, I hope it lands on some of your hearts. If you are going through, as a believer, a very difficult time in your life, it is very easy to turn open the pages of Scripture and realize that usually God speaks the loudest during the most chaotic periods of time. When our hearts are most troubled by the things of the world, that is when our ears can hear the clearest, the message from another world, from, from heaven. We need to understand that pain is not something to complain about. It's a time to open our hearts and our ears to what God is saying to us. Hosea was able to experience more of Christ in and through the pain. And we spend so much time running from our pain that we rarely hear the deeper things of God. Out of Egypt, we see God bringing life out of the land of death. The book of Hosea makes a few things clear. One, the people have broken the covenant. And two, God still loves his people. Yes, the bride has been unfaithful. But the loving, the loving husband, uh, the loving father, that's the overriding image here of, of the whole story, that God's love is stronger still. That God is willing to grab these individuals that are going towards death and he wants to rescue them. 
when we look to ancient history and especially the history of the Hebrew people, anytime the word Egypt pops up, it's a reference to death. Death was, was the most important factor in Egyptian culture. Even today, when you think of Egypt, what do you think about? Mummies and pyramids and book of the dead. All of that is really dark stuff. I don't know why, but for thousands of years, Egypt was sort of the epicenter of darkness, of, a, of the celebration of death. And I think that that, that the, the proximity of Egypt to Israel and the fact that uh, Jesus and his family had to go down into that, there's, there's all kinds of rich metaphor there. But the larger picture is this. We live in a world where death surrounds us. And we can be gobbled up by that darkness or we can believe that God has plan and purpose for us in spite of that darkness. I say again, Hosea as a prophet and this book uh, in particular is surprisingly tender. Notice there in verse one, God says, here's my son, I loved him. The love of God for his son, obviously, but for his people is strong in the book of Hosea and it is all over the Old and New Testament. Don't listen to people who say that the Old Testament is all about wrath and judgment and, and, and difficult topics. You know, if you read the Old Testament carefully, you will see that the message of God's love for you is as strong in the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament. Because I want to tell you, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His love has not gone up and down over time. His love has been consistent for all people in all nations and all places. And his love has been consistent in your life. The problem never is the, the, uh, the amount of God's love. It is always our willingness to receive that love. And Hosea is a reminder of God's tender love. But notice verse 2. And this is what we need to grab hold of out of this passage this morning. One of the problems is, is that in spite of all that love, the more God calls to us, it seems like so many of us, the more we chase after our false idols. Verse two helps us understand why God's people are in their death throes. It's because they are worshiping false gods. It is because they have turned their hearts to sinful things. They're inclined to sin. It has been said that if there is one word in Hebrew that most adequately expresses the theme of the prophetics, uh, prophetic books and the prophetic message, it's this. It's the Hebrew word sub, and it means turn or turn about or return. The prophets are continually crying out for the people, God's people and all people, to turn from their sins. The darkness of sin, the darkness of death, it is here in this passage. We realize that it's part of, of the very fabric of this existence in this world. And yet we need to understand that Jesus was born to defeat that darkness and to deliver us from death. Look at verses three and four. God says, remember, I'm your father. I, I taught you how to walk. Notice verse four, it, it speaks of the cords of kindness. Now, I don't know why this popped into my head, but when my kids were little, we went to the Grand Canyon. And that is a really big hole in the ground, by the way, if you haven't been there. It's a really big hole in the ground. And our kids were little and, you know, uh, active. Um, the senior adults in my first church ta taught me that uh, instead of calling your kids Henri, you call them active. That's a euphemism. It doesn't change anything. But anyway, so, so my kids were 
active. And, and so we were at the Grand Canyon and I thought, you know, my kids are going to go run and jump off that thing into that hole. And so we get there and we noticed that a lot of people were thinking the same thing because back in those days, I don't see them much anymore. I'm assuming somebody shut them down, but they had these leashes for kids that looked like really fancy backpacks. And so the kids would run only so far and then boom, you know, they would, they, they couldn't get away any further. Uh, Get on Amazon today, Rich, and see if you can still get these. I think you might need them. But anyway, (laughs) just, just guessing from the post yesterday, (laughs) we're praying for you, Em. We're praying for you, sister. Anyway, you know, now listen, um, I'm thinking if you put a leash on me, I'm not going to be real happy about that. But the truth is, is that as a parent, um, when I saw that, the first thing I did was laugh. But the second thing I thought was, you know, that's necessary. That was actually a cord of kindness, keeping that child from maybe getting into uh, graver danger. Now, if you're a parent or a grandparent, you know that there are some times where we have to exercise what we call, again, euphemistically tough love. But notice in this passage that there is the mention of tough love, the cords of kindness, something binding us. No one wants to be held down or bound because our flesh says no. But you know, God knows best, just as often parents know best. Again, verses three and four are about a God who loves us enough to care for us, to to give us uh, uh, limits, to build walls around us, a hedge of protection, whatever language you want to use. And those very things that God has put in our lives, those limiters to keep us safe, that's what the world says. Well, I don't want any of your religion. I don't want any of your God. I want to do what I want to do. But see, what they want to do is play on the edge of the abyss. And what God wants to do is keep you safe in his arms. That's what this passage is saying. It is, it is reminding us that our sin is great. Verse two, verses one and two, our sin is great. But verses three and four reminds us that his love is greater still. But before you can receive this great love, you need to be aware of the death that sin has given you. Our culture doesn't want to hear that message. They don't want to hear about sin and the culture doesn't want to hear about the consequences of sin. But the church has to find this balance. Hear me out. We have to find this balance. If we want people to experience the victory in Jesus, we have to be bold enough to confront people in their sins and loving enough to say that Jesus came to save you from those sins. There is a balance here where we tell the truth, but we tell it in love. That we show the sinner that the sin is devastating, but the solution is in Christ. We need to have this balance that Hosea had. That we acknowledge that this is a land of death. That we acknowledge that we are walking through it, but that we also accept and receive the fact that the Heavenly Father has given us His glorious Son. God's tender love can draw you out of Egypt this morning. And bring you to the sunlight of grace. Speaking of that, let's talk about the sunrise. Now, turn, if you will, over to Luke chapter 1. Let's look at this again. The tyranny of time. We never have enough time. It's taken me a year and some, it's going to take me a year and some change to go through Ephesians. By the way, I'm in chapter 5, verse 4 or something like that. I don't know. (laughs) Got four verses into chapter 5. I'm moving fast. But... 
Let's talk about the sunrise that we have in Christ, the hope from above. I wish I had more time to, to talk about Zechariah's prophecy in greater detail, but let's look at verses 78 and 79 again because of the tender mercy of our God. Now notice that theme is just really connected to or carried over from Hosea chapter 11, verses three and four. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness, and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. The, the, the same themes are there that we see in Hosea 11. Those themes of darkness, those themes of sin and the need that we have as human beings. But we see accentuated a little more in Luke's gospel, the sunrise of God. The hope of Jesus. Now, that's not an accident when we consider that chapter 1 here is, is filled with stories about the coming of the Christ and what was happening in those moments right before the birth of Christ. What we see in Luke chapter 1 are glorious vignettes, glorious little, little uh, snippets of God's grace and, and all this beautiful salvation that's coming. We have Mary's song, the Magnificat. We have the angels singing the Gloria, Simeon's uh, um, Dominitus, and then we also have here Zechariah's Benedictus. All of those are the songs of, of, of from the heart, songs of, of glory and grace reminding us that God is awesome. Zechariah was John the Baptist's father. The Holy Spirit helped him see that his son would play a crucial role with the Messiah. And so this song is powerful. Let me just give you the highlights. In verse 68, uh, Zechariah sees that the Messiah would redeem his people. In verse 69 and 77, we are told in those two verses that he would bring about the horn of salvation for us. Verse 71, we are told that the Messiah would be a savior. In verses 72 and 78, we are reminded that he is a giver of mercy. In verse 74, we are told that he is a deliverer. But here in verse 78, I really want you to see that phrase, tender mercy. I love that. I think that's what Hosea saw, as I said a moment ago. I think that all the prophets realized how bad the situation is in this world. Anybody that's ever preached to people, anybody that's ever tried to minister to people and to help them find Jesus, we all know how hard it is, how entrenched we are in our sins. We are a people, and I'm speaking broadly of the human condition here, but we are a people who are very happy doing things our way. And, and even when we are told it's God's way, we sort of kick against that. Every single prophet, every single preacher knows this. But, but we cannot lose hope. The power of God can break through to people who are calloused and cold toward the gospel. We cannot break through to people. But let me tell you, no matter how much ice is in your heart, when the sun rises, when the power of the sun, as we see here in uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 78, when that sunshine begins to radiate, it can melt the coldest heart. Never give up. If you know someone that doesn't know the Lord, never give up. There is no heart in this world too cold for the sunrise to melt it. And I love that in this passage. And it reminds me that we always have this glorious hope from above. You do not need to remain in the land of death one second longer. You don't have to stay in Egypt. God wants to bring you out. And he wants the light of his love to radiate down upon you and to warm your heart. 
But you need to first admit your sin problem and then submit to Christ for the solution. Once we are willing to admit our sinfulness, the light of Jesus can guide us out of our sins and into his presence. This idea of a a, a sunrise or a morning star is part of of the the prophetic heritage. In Numbers 24, 17, Jesus is described as being a morning star, shining light in the darkness. The light of the gospel is real. I want to say to you again, here at Christmas time, I know there there are people that are suffering, that the the darkness seems to be darker for some at, at this time of year. Don't let... The devil tell you a lie. Don't allow your heart to remain in darkness when there is such beautiful light to be found in Christ. Don't allow that darkness to stay with you. Don't stay in Egypt, but let the Spirit guide you out. Let let your heart be led to the light. And that brings us to the last point we want to make. And if you will turn to 1 Corinthians 15, let us read it again. I I love this passage. It's one of my favorite in all of the Bible. It is not a Christmas passage, but it is a Christian hope that we cannot miss. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? We are all sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. We have all inherited a perishable body from them. Verses 42 through 49 uh, here in 1 Corinthians 15 make that so painfully clear. We have a body that will return to the dust from which it was made. Verse 49 tells us that. The human experience, when we look at it in terms of sheer physicality, it's a depressing thing to think about. That all that you are and all of the the, the things you've seen and experienced, it looks like death robs you of that. It looks like all of the evidence is on death's side that science and medicine are telling us that, that, that the enemy of death wins. But those of us who are reading the scriptures, those of us who have the words of Paul here in 1 Corinthians 15, we know better. We know the last enemy is, is death, but it is defeated. We do, not, uh, we do not tell ourselves lies. We know that death is a formidable enemy, but we have a stronger advocate in Christ. It is so important for us as we celebrate Christmas, we cannot separate the manger from the empty tomb. We have to make the straight line from, from Jesus coming to Jesus dying to Jesus defeating death with the power of resurrection. The hope we have and the hope we preach is that if we will trust in Jesus, not only will he deliver us from death, not only will he give us strength to go through this life, but he will give us eternal life with him. The stakes are literally eternal. We share this message because it is the most important message in the universe. And I don't use that kind of hyperbolic language uh, loosely. I mean it. This is the most important message in the world. And we want people to know the victory of Christmas. The victory of Christmas is the empty tomb. The victory of Christmas is that death no longer has its sting in your life. 
The victory of Christmas is that you will spend forever with Jesus when you believe in him. That's the message we must preach. Our victory began in the manger, but it needs to be a victory we continue to enjoy today. The life and hope of Christmas must be our life and hope each day. I began our time together by quoting you that song from Graham Kendrick, and it goes again, from heaven you came, helpless babe, entered our world, your glory veiled, not to be served, but to serve and give your life that we might live. But here's the chorus. This is our God, the servant king. He calls us now to follow him, to bring our lives as a daily offering of worship to the servant king. Jesus is victorious over death and every enemy we have. But let me challenge you this morning to not just be thankful for what he's done, but to ask him to continue doing in your life what he's called you to do, that he will work through you, that you can serve the servant king, that you can take these stories and and you can go from Hosea all the way here to 1 Corinthians 15 and you can take from all of these passages that we've looked at the courage that you need to live the life that Christ wants you to live. We want to make a straight line from Christmas to the cross, to the resurrection hope. So how can you have victory? Just summarizing what we've said. For you to have victory this Christmas, first, confess your sins and walk away from spiritual death. Don't remain in your sins one second longer. Egypt is not your home. The promised land is your home. Secondly, open your eyes to see the light of Jesus and walk in that light. Zechariah saw the sunrise. He saw the light and he encourages us to walk in it. And then, believer, the third point is this. We need to live in the power of the resurrection. I keep asking myself what it's going to take for Ridgecrest Baptist Church to be the church she's called to be. And the only answer I have is we have to live in the power of resurrection life. That we, we do not have just life, but we have eternal life in him. But it all begins this morning with you. Do you have victory in Jesus? Do you know the light of his love? Do you have the hope of resurrection? Thanks for listening. For additional resources, to learn more about us, or get connected, visit ridgecrestbaptist.org.